afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Thank you for joining me. My guest, uh, Marilyn McIntyre, had joined me many years ago, and we talked about her book, Caring for Words in a Culture of Lies. It's been released in a second edition, and you know, I, I looked at it again. I said, "This we need to really get out front on this uh, book. She's written <clears throat> many thoughtful books uh, looking at the phenomenon of human language and how we use words. Um, we've seen, for instance, When Poets Pray, Speaking Peace in a Climate of Conflict, um, What's in a Phrase, Pausing Where Scripture Gives You Pause, which won the Christianity Today's 2015 Book Award on Spirituality. Uh, but Marilyn, it's good to have you back here. It's been a long, long time. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be back. When did you first write Caring for Words in a Culture of Lies? Well, it began as a series of lectures at Princeton Seminary in 2004, Yeah. after which I began to think about it further, and so it the book was completed in 2009. Yeah, yeah. Published in 2009, yeah. Um, yeah. You've watched the rise of social media as you've thought on these things. When you look right. at the use of language in social media, does that drive you up a tree? <laughs> Sometimes. Yeah. Um, yes, of course. The abbreviation and the slogans and memes and... Um, the loss of etymological sensibility in all of the kind of wordlings, the little um, indicators that aren't even really words. That, that's something of a problem in that you lose some of the connection to the historical dimension of a word yeah. or the resonance that comes with it and the elusiveness. Yeah. I mean, there are other things to say about it, but yeah. No, no, I, I bring this up because I think... I've raised five children, and I've watched um, their, the way they use language has changed, actually. Uh, yeah. And uh, it, it concerns me, and I have a hard time conveying why it's important that we preserve the proper uh, respect uh, for language and for words, uh, not only as Christians, but just as, as human beings. Uh, mm -hmm. politicians and, and activists know that the power to define is the power to control. That's kind of a right. crass way of getting at this, but that's part of the problem, isn't it? I mean, if we don't know how to use language properly, we're more subject to be abused by those who misuse language. That's right. And so I think that recognizing rhetorical strategies or listening for how someone puts something, listening for the logic of the metaphors that they are employing, or I was about to say deploying, which is a military metaphor. <laughs> you hear that word a lot. Yeah. Makes you a much more sophisticated listener and much more able to come back with a critique that says, look at the assumptions that are embedded in the way you put that. And so... I don't think that to think of language as a weapon is a good idea, but right. I do think it's important to think of it as a precision instrument. Mm -hmm. And if you have a knife that you rely on to do cooking tasks, or certainly if you're a surgeon and you're relying on your scalpel, you want it to stay sharp. Yeah, yeah. Oh, very good. Um, the <clears throat> I, I 
run across people, including friends, who would think that um, fighting against uh, poor language, use of language, is uh, something for people like you. Uh, you're a professional writer, um, but it's not for the rest of us who, you know, don't make our living being uh, careful vendors of words. Well, someone asked me when the book first came out, so is this just an apologetic for standard English? And no, it isn't. Mm -hmm. I think if you listen to some of the um, ways that people in certain kind of regional cultures tell stories, for instance, or even if you listen to some of the popular language usages that come off the streets in urban centers, like rap is fascinating. If you really listen, um, a lot of it is just very agile use of language. It's like language doing a a complicated dance. So I think it's really important not to be elitist about this. At the same time, I think precision and care and clarity don't have to do with just being proper. Right. Right. No, that's very good. A very important point to make, because there's a, there's a, a clear uh, logic and a precision. Uh, those of us who are not familiar with the cadences and the range of vocabulary in hip hop or rap mm-hmm. uh, can't tell good from bad. But the truth is, there is good and bad, uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. and and those who are accustomed to the language can tell who are real masters uh, of the, the medium and those who aren't. Uh, so when you, when you look at that, let's, let's just take that. So when you look at uh, regional use of language, when you look at, uh, in this case, you've got a, a, a street language that has been uh, elevated to music, um, what are the standards that apply we're not just talking about proper English here. We're talking about effective use of language and uh, language which uh, ele- elevates rather than debases. What do you look for? Well, I love that question. I think that there's a long list of things that you might look for. One is a kind of deftness or agility or uh, surprising usages that make you think twice about what you're hearing. Um, also, a sense of melody. All language communicates in part by the inflections and melodies of the speech. Hmm. And so, how do speakers bring language closer to a music that enlivens? How does it communicate, if you want to use this kind of language, on a vibrational level? You know, what do we feel when we hear it? And um, where does it make it stop? And I really think that's an important question. What does it invite us to do, either the performance of a poem or a written poem, for instance? What does this poet invite us to do? What does this poet require of us? What do you need to do in order to receive the gift that's being offered? And so I think that's a good test question to bring to any text or um, sermon or talk or what you're hearing or reading. Is what, do, what does this ask of me? Mm-hmm. And how am I moved? You know, we used the term, I was quite moved by that passage. But I think if we really pause over the word moved, what this, in what direction does it move us? And what does it move us toward? 
So I, language is relational, of course, and to think of it as a, an offering or a gift that we bring to others, either in writing or speaking, um, is to say there's a transaction here. There's something offered and something received, and clarity is another very important criterion, I think. Is there a kind of lucidity in what's being um, opened up for me as I read or hear this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is, I mean, this is, I want to make clear, this is not merely a concern for people who think of themselves as literary. Um, this, this is for people who simply want to uh, learn how best to communicate and also how best to listen, it sounds to me. Right, yeah. right. Well, I like the fact that the root word of obedience was to hear or listen. Hmm. And so I think there's a kind of um, willingness or a sort of obedience to the call of the moment that it's good to bring into conversation as a listener and to say, I'm going to listen for the gift here. Um, But I, now I'm losing your question. Because somebody's beeping on my phone. Oh. I hope you didn't hear it. <laughs> no, I didn't hear it myself, so we're safe. Uh, well, you were saying that it's not just literary people right. that all of us need to engage with this. And, yes. and certainly it's true that um, I, I think it's important not to let language go flat and just resort to common um, euphemisms and slogans and worn out, you know, cliches. Cliches are dangerous Mm -hmm. because they prevent actual thought. Right. So going back to what does this speaker or writer invite me to do, if they're mouthing cliches or abstractions, they're inviting you to go to sleep. Just don't think too hard about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and also cliches are used to uh, dismiss people. Right. You ask me a question, and I answer you in a cliche. I, actually, what I'm saying is, don't bother me. <laughs> right. I don't want to think any further yeah, about this. Yeah, and right. don't really want you to, either. <laughs> <laughs> yes, let's, let's move on, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Um, Christians uh, worship one who is called the Logos, Lagos, the Word, uh, we mm-hmm. have a doctrine, uh, most Christian traditions have a doctrine of revelation, which includes inspiration and um, of words, uh, inscripturated revelation, the, the Bible. Uh, mm-hmm. Many Christian traditions are liturgical, and so there's the application of um, language, uh, patterned, patterned speech and structured language to the act of worship. Do Christians have, uh, does the Christian tradition have special insight into the use of language? Do you, the Christian writers, um, especially uh, in, in Reformational traditions, uh, the sermon is the climactic moment of the, of the worship service, less so among Catholic and Orthodox, but... Um, do Christians have special insight into the use of language since we worship one who is called the Word? Well, I I kind of hesitate over the word special because I think of the deep language focus of, say, Jewish tradition. Mm-hmm. Sure. 
and the richness of, um, as I understand it, the, you know, many other cultures, the Quran and the Confucian Analects and so on. Every, every cultural tradition has texts that, mm-hmm. um, that are prized for their, not only their story material, but their saying and language. But I do think that there is something quite important about Christian focus on the word. Yeah. Melon, hold it there. I've got, I've got a break coming up. Got to take a break, unfortunately. And I'll be back in just a few minutes and we'll continue that conversation. Marilyn McIntyre, my guest, a great book, Caring for Words in a Culture of Lies. I'm Al Cresta with me, Marilyn McIntyre, author of Caring for Words in a Culture of Lies. The book focuses on stewardship of language, words, um, stewardship of tongue and pen, and offers uh, some basic rules uh, by which we can kind of check our stewardship of language. We were talking before the break, Marilyn, about uh, the Christians and their relationship to uh, he who is the word, their, mm-hmm. the 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 preoccupation with words that we often see in the world of theology, uh, trying to digest the language of Scripture, uh, the the use of liturgical language. And I was asking, um, in particular, do Christians bring any uh, unique insights to the world of language? So pick it up from there. Yeah. I believe that we do. I mean, I, I said before the break that, of course, I don't want to claim that we're the only right. uh, religious tradition that is interested in, deeply interested in language. But right. on the other hand, the Judeo-Christian tradition begins in Hebrew, which is a language that George Steiner says is arguably one of the most ambiguous on earth, meaning that <laughs> that for instance, they don't put their vowels in, and there's, it's right. highly interpretable, which means that it puts a lot of uh, emphasis on the engagement and involvement of the reader yes. in the business of interpretation. And then it continues in Greek, which has a whole other layer of intellectual richness to it. And I think it's important not to forget Aramaic, which... Um, Neil Douglas Kloss is described as an essentially mystical language hmm. that Jesus spoke. Yeah. And so there are all these layers of language in the text itself, yeah. and there are at least 75 different extant translations of the Bible in English, <laughs> which tells you something about how, how frequently translators can return to it and turn the words to new angles and, and amplify their understanding of it. And I don't, uh, what that says to me is, this is a living word. And so the idea of the Bible and Jesus as the living word, or Mm -hmm. the embodied, Jesus is the embodied word, says, you know, when Jesus says, I am the way, that gets added that the way is not something to be described, the way is something to be lived. Yes. And it is relational. And so I think that the understanding of language that's embedded in the prologue to the Gospel of John, 
which is so beautiful. It just starts in the beginning with the Word. Yeah. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Going all the way back to utterance in Genesis as this, the original energy that spoke forth the universe. Yeah. To me, it gets us to, to an understanding of a word, which is that it's a little packet of energy that you put out into the world. Mm-hmm. And I think it was linguist Barry Sanders, whom I quote a number of times in this book, who said um, that the Hebrews, the ancient Hebrews, had a very high understanding of the spoken word because words are made of the breath of life. Yes. yes. When we speak a word, it comes out on the breath of life that's given by God. We don't make take a single breath on our own. Mm-hmm without its being given. So all of that suggests to me that um, we are meant to revel in words and delight in them, and all the different genres in the Bible, too, 66 books of poetry and history and biography and so many different ways of getting at the truth mm-hmm. suggests that language kind of circles the, the thing, the one who cannot be spoken and the thing that cannot be spoken, but like all the colors of the prism coming back to the white light. Yes. As a Catholic, I'll expand the canon to 73 books, if you don't mind. <laughs> oh, yes. Okay. Um, well, I actually think those are wonderful books. I'm so sorry we, whoever it was, sidelined them. Well, I, I, I love language. I love reading. Um, ever since I was a kid, I got, was aware of the importance and value of words but i know i know that uh from long experience that uh many people don't enjoy they don't frolic in language they don't see the play of it uh, you have a chapter in here in fact on play in language right. how, how how do you help people uh realize the joy of words oh well, you know, I've been an English teacher for a long time. Oh, good. Okay. So, and I, I think some English teachers should be sued for malpractice, actually. <laughs> and I've seen students come into college just either terrified of, with poetry anxiety. You know, math mm-hmm. anxiety gets a lot of press, but a lot of people have poetry anxiety. <laughs> I just want to see, you know, this poem is an invitation to play. Even serious poems are invitations to be at play in the field of language and to watch what language can do and to notice how it wakes you up to different dimensions of understanding. So I think that to be playful with words is to to really understand the spirit that animates language. Puns. You now people laugh about puns, and my dad was an inveterate <laughs> pun maker, and, uh-huh. you know, we all groaned and rolled our eyes. But actually... I'm so grateful for all of Dad's puns. Yes. Because he was incessantly playful, and he was listening for the way words interacted with each other mm-hmm. and modeled that for us. Yeah. And to be around people who can break into song or uh, recite lines from poems or just bring them into conversation is to notice what pleasure can be taken in language. So it seems to me that rather than try to persuade people that language is worth our attention, to be attentive to it and to take pleasure in it and to laugh over it and to, you know, call each other's attention to cool metaphors and yes. fun usages 
is to say, come play with me. That's good. Good. Something I've noticed, uh, which I don't remember when I was yo- younger, uh, but which is I've seen co- grow up with my uh, with my children and their friends, and that is the tendency to quote extensive lines from movies, and mm-hmm. they actually I mean it's it's not uncommon and they it's playful it's always done in a spirit of isn't this wonderful let's laugh together you know the, and yeah. I thought this is a new type of quotation. <laughs> Which I don't yeah. remember growing up with, but uh, I'm—I'm—I I'm, I, I, I'm, actually I'm a little impressed with it because I don't s- memorize scripts like that. I am too. I think. Well, I'm, my little granddaughter, who's ten, can quote long passages from Hamilton, and not only the sung passages. And she's—you know—it seems to me that musicals and um, movies. They are the way that culture is transmitting story mm-hmm. at this point, for good or ill. Right. And I think it's a trade-off. It's a very powerful medium, and I have some anxiety about its power. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think that there is a loss in the disengagement from text. And even in classrooms, a lot of people are you know, assigning movies. So if it's not a film studies course, I really pretty much insist on going to the text first. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that said, the, if you learn how to read a film and you really understand the sophistication that's brought to camera angles and color and um, just the visual field that's created, and then on top of that, the language environment, um, they have a lot to draw on. And that they are quoting anything means they're really paying attention to the verbatim uh, listening that says, how did you put that? That was cool. Yeah. That was fun. That was, that woke me up. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that you're right to appreciate the fact that that there's something going on there that's very life-giving. Have you done much in the history of sermonizing? and looked at the use of language. Um, yes. Are we getting better at it or worse? <laughs> <laughs> In general, I think it's a little harder to hear a good sermon than it used to be, and I think part of the reason is that they are shorter mm-hmm. in many churches. That's true, yeah. And that people's, um, people's willingness to listen has somewhat diminished. I think just in general, we have there are so many cultural forces that diminish our attention span. My husband is a retired Presbyterian pastor, and he's been in situations, not in his, his own churches where he was preaching, but sometimes if he's invited to preach, people will say, well, really, we'd rather not go over 15 minutes, <laughs> or sometimes it's 12 minutes. Right, right. And you know, it's not great so little. You know, you can do interesting things in 15 minutes, but still, when you think about Jonathan Edwards preaching for four hours, it kind of tells you something about people's openness to what can be communicated in a sermon. Yeah, yeah. But I have heard stunning sermons from people who really deepened my faith and opened my awareness of something that was very familiar in Scripture. Mm-hmm. And so I'm so grateful for that. It's not that there aren't good sermons happening. Right. Um, right. I think about William Barber these days. He's 
kind of wearing the mantle of Martin Luther King in some ways. And he's the um, person who is a co-sponsor of the Poor People's March, and he's still preaching in his own church in huh. North Carolina. Interesting. He draws on that rich African-American tradition of preaching yes. and adds something to it with a kind of boldness, but also a this sort of rhetorical force and clarity that I think has characterized African-American preaching for many years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I remember when my husband first went in midlife, he switched from an academic career to into, um, went back to seminary. And one of the first talks that the president of the seminary gave, he said to this largely white group, not altogether, but he said, thank God for the black church in America. Mm-hmm. They have something, they have sort of treasured something that the rest of us still need to learn from. Yeah. And I think that's true of every different ethnic and cultural tradition in some way also. But he was referring largely to their the power of preaching. Well, so yeah. that's one place to pay attention to. Yes, and, and also, I mean, there's a very... Um in a lot of uh, reaching of African-American pastors, there's a, a, a clear uh, con- conscious cadence that uh, is employed, um, which mm-hmm. is not nearly as uh, uh, white, white pastors are not nearly as aware of the importance of cadence, I think, in sermon delivery. Uh, I was in when I was yeah. in seminary. I had I, I was in ho- my homiletics class. Half of us were white, half of us were black, and it was it was always mm-hmm. fun to see <laughs> as we would try to challenge one another uh, during mm-hmm. our our uh, our sermons that we had to give. And uh, but I noticed that there was a real sense of cadence that uh, yes. I didn't have, or at least the same kind well, of cadence. Think, yeah, right. I think that. They have a tradition of living very close to song. And you know how important gospel music yeah, is yeah. in black American culture. And I remember one time hearing Maya Angelou speak. And she just moved seamlessly from speech to song hmm. and act nice. in the middle of the talk. Nice. Yeah. Marilyn, I'm out of time. Thank you very much, though, for being with me today. Oh, what a pleasure. Yeah, your work is, uh, is very moving. Oh, I'm so glad. I'll talk to you again. Thank you. Thank you.